Once upon a time, there was a wonderful church that suddenly found itself in trouble. After a long, exciting season of unbroken and what seemed like unstoppable growth, things just didn't seem to be working as well as they once did. For one thing, many of the new people came from very different backgrounds, culturally, spiritually. They didn't understand the way things had always been done in the church, and they brought with them a whole new set of needs and ideas. As a result, some of the members began to resent these newcomers. They felt like their church was changing, and they couldn't control it. At the same time, the newer folks, especially those from different cultural backgrounds, were feeling left out and that their needs and ideas were being overlooked. At times, the leaders seemed so preoccupied with all this growth that they lost track of what was really important. Some folks felt the teaching ministry of the church wasn't as strong as it used to be. Others felt there should be more of an emphasis on prayer. There were stories of people falling through the cracks, not being cared for. The leaders seemed to be overwhelmed at times, like they couldn't keep up and didn't quite know what to do next. It was a very unsettling time, and the future of the church seemed to be in peril. You may be guessing that the church I'm describing is our church, or maybe one you grew up in. Those are good guesses. But the troubled church I have in mind is the New Testament church in the opening chapters of the book of Acts. The story of the early church in the book of Acts is a story of growth in every direction, deeper, closer, wider. You see a balanced commitment in that church to discipleship, outreach, worship, and community right from the start. The believers in the early church are described as being one in heart and mind, and there were no needy persons among them. But by the time you get to Acts chapter 6, things begin to unravel. We see unmet needs, we see overworked leaders, we see unsettling changes and rifts within the congregation. What we're going to discover today is that the problems that threatened the early church have threatened every church ever since, including New Life Church, Philadelphia. And that handling those challenges and those problems well determines whether a church thrives or collapses. We are in a sermon series on our church's new vision, mission, and motto, Last week we looked at the heart of our vision. Today we're going to focus on the heart of our mission. And uh, what is our mission? Well, here it is. What what is God calling our church to do in light of our vision? Uh, As a family following Jesus in the city, we commit ourselves to worship God as one with the voices of the nations, to walk together in repentance, faith, and obedience, to seek gospel-driven transformation through God's word, to extend God's care in practical ways to restore the whole person, and to invite the broken everywhere into relationship with the God who loves them. Uh, That's our mission. 
title of the message today is Mission Unstoppable. You've heard of Mission Impossible? Well, this is Mission Unstoppable because God is in it. So our text is in Acts 6, the first seven verses. Uh, Follow along as I read. The words are on screen. This is the word of God. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Uh, Right from the beginning of this account in our text, uh, we learn that there's trouble in paradise. Some of the church members were complaining, it says in verse 1. They're complaining about what was going on. Now, I know it's hard to imagine that church members would ever complain. That would never happen here, right? But it was happening in the early church. How about that? Well, there were several reasons for their complaints. The first and most obvious reason was that people's needs were being overlooked. Widows in particular were not receiving all the help they needed. Since widows in that culture at that time uh, generally were not able to provide for themselves and no longer had a husband to help provide for them, it became the responsibility of the faith community to care for them. But With all this growth in the church, there were so many widows that the apostles couldn't keep up with them all. But what made the problem even more difficult was a growing rift in the congregation between the Hebraic Jews, who were steeped in Jewish culture, scripture, and tradition, and the Grecian Jews, uh, who were from many different nations and were more secular in their practice and their outlook. So there was prejudice and resentment on both sides. There was a growing racial divide. And the situation had become so difficult that the leaders really didn't know what to do. They were trying to meet everybody's needs, but they couldn't keep up. And in fact, they were beginning to neglect their primary responsibilities as spiritual leaders. The teaching and the worship of the church was beginning to suffer. And and that is no small problem. If the leaders and the congregation didn't figure this out, it had the potential to split the church or at least to derail the mission. Every church ever since has encountered the same problems as these. 
In fact, we often refer to them as growing pains. When a church grows, it changes, just like a human being. The workload increases, there's tension between newcomers and long-timers. It goes kind of like this. You start small. When you begin to grow, everybody is excited. I mean, the sanctuary feels fuller. Uh, the singing is louder. There are more kids in Sunday school. There's more money in the offering basket. But soon it becomes apparent that along with the new attendees comes a new set of problems. Some of them are not believers yet. They don't know Christ yet. They don't really know how to act in church. Uh, maybe they clap when they aren't supposed to, or they talk during the singing or the sermon. Some of them come with problems or suggestions about how to do things differently. More kids in Sunday school, it means the rooms are more crowded, and teachers can easily feel overwhelmed. Leaders become torn between following up on new people and making home visits to older members. Uh, they spend more time addressing and solving problems and counseling people. So every growing church, every church that's been around a while, is going to come to moments like this. When members are troubled, leaders are overwhelmed, and everything uh, is changing. It seems like it's changing or it needs to. So how leaders and members respond to those moments will determine whether the church will thrive or whether it will settle into a kind of stagnation or decline. Thankfully, here in the Word of God, at this critical moment in early church history, the apostles made a bold and innovative decision. And it had to do with a new way of doing mission. The apostles decided to give away the ministry. A new way of doing mission, the apostles decided to give away the ministry. Look at verse 2. They say, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. At this critical moment, the apostles realized that they couldn't meet everyone's needs and that, in fact, they, they shouldn't even try to. It wasn't that people's needs were not important. And it wasn't that the 12 were above uh, waiting on tables and distributing food. Personally, I'm sure they found it quite satisfying to be helping people in such practical, personal, hands-on kind of way, and they're going to have to let that go. I'm sure that was difficult. But what they came to realize was that by trying to do it all themselves, they were not only failing to keep up, but they were neglecting their primary responsibilities, and they were depriving other members of the congregation the opportunity to serve. So they decided to give the ministry away. They decided to share the work of ministry with others. Look at verse 3. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will give this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. Now think about what just happened. This is absolutely amazing. The leaders 
are not defensive, they are not territorial, and the whole community is happy with their proposal to hand the ministry over to the church. Have you seen that happen? It's a miracle. It's a miracle when leaders are not defensive, not territorial, and the whole group is happy with the proposal. That's a wonderful moment because it's, this is a family talk they're having, but it's also a Holy Spirit talk. And the Holy Spirit is speaking into his church. And it's really miraculous. It's really miraculous. There had never been anything like this before. If you go back and read through chapters 2 through 5 in the book of Acts, you're going to see all sorts of wonderful things happening. Worship, caring, teaching, outreach. The only problem is that the apostles were doing it all. The apostles preached, they decided, they healed, they handed out the money. It's Peter this and John that in every chapter. But by the time you get to Acts chapter 6, the game changes. And it changes forever. With the help of the congregation, the apostles choose seven men to take responsibility to care for the widows and other such practical needs. Now, the word service doesn't appear in our English translation, but the Greek word for service, for serving, actually appears three times in this passage. It's about serving. And then in a symbolic uh, act of empowerment and and equipping through the Holy Spirit, uh, the apostles lay their hands on these men and commission them, equip them for their ministry. This is really the beginning of the ministry of the deacons in the church, to mobilize mercy ministry in the church family. And it's also the beginning of a diversity of leaders in the church. Take another look at those seven names. You might not have noticed it the first time you read it, but every one of those seven names is a Grecian name. They've completely turned over the the mobilizing, the overseeing of the ministry of mercy to the Grecian Jews. That's That's a radical step. It diversifies the leadership immediately. It's the beginning of a new day for the church in which mission and ministry would be placed in the hands of ordinary men and women who had been called and gifted by God to do his work in the world. You may have noticed when you came in this morning that the fellowship hall downstairs, it looks kind of different. And if you had a chance to be here during the Sunday school hour, then you had a chance to wander around and look at all these tables and all the ministries of the church that had prepared uh, an information display about what's going on and how you can get involved. Uh, Those tables and display boards will be up when, uh, they'll still be up when the service is over. They'll be up throughout the barbecue. If you want to wander around in the fellowship hall and look at those things, you need a little more time with them, they will be there. Uh, The idea is that the whole church has an opportunity to see what's going on uh, in mission and ministry, and, and everybody has an opportunity to get involved. That's our hope for this ministry fair. And it's really a reflection of what we see started here in our text today in Acts chapter 6. And I want you to notice what happened as a result. 
as ministry and mission is handed to the church and the leadership is diversified, look what happens. What's the result in verse 7? So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is amazing. As, as people are getting involved in mission and ministry, people are coming to Jesus like crazy, including those who had been most resistant to him. Just an amazing picture of God at work in the life and ministry and mission of his church. It's a vibrant, growing church once again because the people are getting involved in doing the mission. It's no longer Peter this and John that. It's everybody. So this church is becoming a mission-driven community, and that really leads us to our big idea for today. Our big idea for today is this. The church was meant to be a mission-driven community that can't be kept in one race or nation, can't keep quiet, can't stand still, and can't be stopped. The church was meant to be, by God, this is his design, his intent. The church was meant to be a mission-driven community that can't be kept in one race or one nation, can't keep quiet, can't stand still, can't be stopped. The book of Acts shows us what the church is meant to be then, and now. We put our mission uh, statement back uh, in front of you, and, and you can see what's in the book of Acts reflected in this mission statement, that the church is meant to be a life-changing church that values discipleship to Jesus, a spirit-filled church that values worship, a life-sharing church that values community, and a mission-driven church that values outreach. So from the very beginning, uh, the church recognized that they were on a mission. It was a mission that God had given to them. They were called into being for the very purpose of bearing witness to the risen Christ and making disciples of Jesus from all the nations. So it's no wonder, you read earlier in the book of Acts, that they could not stop speaking about what they had seen and heard. It just galvanized everything for them. It would deny their very reason for existence if they were to stop and be still. Think of it this way. Uh, you may have noticed that we're in an election year in our country. Is, is anybody aware of this? Right? We wish we were not so aware, I think. Okay, it's, a, it's an election year. We're going to we're going to elect a president, among other uh, offices. So I want you to imagine a political party being free to exist as long as they don't try to get people elected. Sounds good. <laughs> I want you to imagine that. In other words, they can study the issues, they can you know, articulate their platform, they can set up headquarters, build organizations in any city they choose. They can hold conventions and debates uh, they can raise money, they can, you know, celebrate their values and wear red or blue to their heart's content, but they can't try to influence elections. They can't try to get anybody elected. They can't try to shape the nation's agenda. I mean, that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? 
Getting people elected and shaping the nation's agenda is the very reason a political party exists. Now, as ridiculous as it sounds, that's often what churches end up doing without realizing it. They give up their mission. They're doing lots of things, but they've given up their mission, which is to bring Jesus to the nations. (laughs) That was unacceptable to the early church. They had to reach out, even at the risk of their own comfort and their own safety. In the words of a pastor named Erwin McManus, they became an unstoppable force, unstoppable mission. How did that happen? How did that happen? Well, the answer is actually pretty simple. They went deeper. It was the reality of their own experiences and relationship with Jesus Christ that compelled them out into mission. They went deeper with Christ to go wider in mission. It was the time, think of it, it was the time they spent with Christ after he had risen from the dead and opened the scriptures to them. It was the days they spent in prayer with the 120 gathered in that upper room. It was the fullness of the Holy Spirit falling upon them at Pentecost and giving them courage, giving them conviction. It was the fellowship they enjoyed with one another, their worship services. These experiences were so real, so satisfying, so life-changing that they couldn't help but talk about them with other people. Let me try a bit of a goofy illustration that might help us get the point. I got an iPhone a few years ago. Now, I'm not a technophile. I'm not cutting edge. I wish I were, but I'm not. But I had to get a new phone. And our sons had given Shelly an iPhone as a gift, but somehow they had neglected to give me one. So, you know, what's up with that? So, you know, I had to have one. I just, you know, I had to have one because my wife had one. Isn't that how it works? Well, I got one. It it looked cool. It looked, you know, easy to use. And I'm glad I got one. It is easy to use. It's it's definitely cooler than my old flip phone. Anybody ever have those? You still have them, right? (laughs) Yeah. I've come to appreciate the features and the apps. But the truth is, I've hardly scratched the surface of what an iPhone can do. I hardly have any music on it. Uh, I don't play games on it. In other words, I haven't gone very deep into my iPhone, so I don't really have a lot to say about it. But one time, I was in a store, and I got stuck in a really long checkout line. I took out my iPhone, which I hadn't had very long, to let Shell know where I was. And the guy behind me in line happened to notice, and he immediately took out his iPhone And I started talking about it. He said, don't you love this thing? He started telling me all the ways he uses it. They started showing me all the apps he had on it, not just telling me, but actually opening them and, you know, showing me how they worked. (laughs) He got really excited, and he started talking in a louder and louder voice, and everybody around us is, like, looking, you know, and what's going on over here, listening. And and then he asked me what apps I had on my iPhone. (laughs) 
Of course, I was embarrassed because I hardly had any. And he told me, of course, which ones I should get and the ways they would make my life better. (laughs) You see what was happening there? I was being witnessed to. Yeah, I was being witnessed to. This guy was an iPhone evangelist. Why? Because his own experience with the iPhone was so real, so satisfying, and so life-changing for him that he couldn't keep quiet about it. And he could not stand the thought of me, a total stranger, not using my iPhone to its full potential. So he had gone deep into his iPhone, and then he went wide. He wanted everyone around him to have the same experience that he did. Well, in a similar way, the early church had gone deep, really deep in its experience and its relationship with the risen Christ. And it was so real, and it was so satisfying, and it was so life-changing that they just couldn't help but reach out and tell others about Jesus. Their mission was so simple and so clear. So, if you and I are not compelled to share Christ with others, it could be that we haven't gone very deep with Christ ourselves. If we're not convinced that the whole world needs Jesus Christ, maybe it's because we're not too sure if we need him very much. Maybe we're not really experiencing what life with Christ was meant to be like. If we're not involved in gospel-driven mission, maybe it's because the gospel is on the fringes of our lives. Somehow it's drifted from the center out onto the edges. And it's, it's not really at the core of, of who we are and what we do and what really matters. And so what do we have to talk about? I want you to know I'm not talking... I'm not not just talking to you. I am preaching to myself. Some of you may know that I'm going to be going away. I do this every fall. This afternoon, I'm going away for several days uh, just on a personal retreat. And uh, I have some assignments I've been given by my counselor. And I'm really laboring to really regain some intimacy with Jesus in in my walk with him, in my relationship with him that I feel I've lost. And I feel I've lost it. It's been gone for a while. And I need help. I need your prayers. I need the Lord. So I'm being sent away with, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm supposed to hang out with Jesus. And I want to do that. I need to, I need to know him better. I get to, it's almost like I need to get to know him again in some ways. I really ask your prayers for that. See, we, we need to go deep. We're not going to, any, we're not going to anybody if we're not going deep with Christ. So you can put it like this, thinking about the iPhone evangelist. We need more apps. We need more apps. In other words, we need to go deeper with Jesus in worship, in prayer, in fellowship, into the Bible. And when we do that, something else will inevitably happen. We will reach wider. The really cool thing is that these two things happen at the same time. You go deeper and you go wider at the same time. They're they're supposed to work together. That's how it works. 
Now, sometimes you'll hear a church or a church ministry say something like this. You know, I don't think we're ready to reach out yet. We need to spend some time going deeper, and then we'll be ready to go wider. Now, it sounds spiritual, even logical, but it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work at all. You know what happens to churches or groups that do that? They not only never get around to doing mission, to reaching out, but they, they become so ingrown and so self-absorbed that they begin to die. So think about a tree. Think about a tree. As the roots go deeper and find nourishment, the branches reach wider and bear fruit and give shade. And those things happen simultaneously. A tree doesn't spend a couple of years concentrating on its roots and and then a couple of years spreading its branches. It, It won't work. It grows in both directions at the same time, deeper and wider. Go deeper to go wider. That's how a church was meant to grow, too. That's how a church was meant to be healthy and growing and thriving in God's goodness. I find it really exciting to see how unstoppable the early church was. Always going deeper, always going wider, deeper with Jesus, wider in his gospel mission. And it's really got to be the same for us as the family of Jesus in Philadelphia today. We we cannot keep quiet, not after what Christ has done for us. Have you thought lately about what Christ has done? And we cannot stand still, not after what Christ has done for for needy, broken, sinful people like us to forgive our sins, to give us new life, to make us whole. And we've got to spread that news. We've got to reach some people with that great news. We've got the best news and the best mission in the whole wide world. If the early church couldn't keep quiet, couldn't stand still, even in the face of persecution, how can we be anything less than a mission-driven community that keeps going deeper, keeps reaching wider as the family of Jesus Christ? It's a mission unstoppable because God is in it. That God is here. The Holy Spirit is here. He's always wanting uh, to show us Jesus, crucified for our sin and, and raised from the dead to give us life. Every day, the Spirit is wanting to show us Jesus, that we might go deeper with Jesus. And as we do that, we're going to have something to share with others. We'll be able to, to tell some other beggars where to find the bread, the bread of life, because we're being fed with it every day. And that's what makes it an unstoppable mission. Amen? Amen. We come to the Lord's table today. Um, It's always a wonderful time for us as a church family to to gather around uh, this Lord's Supper. And as we do that, uh, I'd like to read just a couple verses from Luke's account of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. Luke chapter 22 verse 14, when the hour came, 
Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Talking about going to the cross. Verse 28, you are those who have stood by me in my trial, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. It's a beautiful picture, what Jesus is doing there. He gathers his followers around him, and they eat this meal together. And he said, there's nothing I want to do more than to be with you before I suffer, before I go to the cross. And he says to them, you know, you are those who've stood by me in my trial. In other words, Jesus has been through a few things already. Um, It's going to culminate in the cross, where he's going to be nailed to a Roman cross, and he's going to bleed and suffer and die for the sins of his people. But that wasn't his first experience with suffering, was it? I mean, he had been through a few trials. He was rejected. He was mocked. He was called a man of sorrows. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And he said to his followers, you're the ones who have been with me the whole way. You've been with me through all of that. And he says, I want you to know that I'm giving you a kingdom. The same kingdom that I've come for, that the Father's given to me. And uh, really what he's doing there is he's giving us a mission. This is about the advancing of the kingdom of Jesus Christ across the face of the earth. Through all ages, from age to age, until he comes back, until we see him face to face. He's giving us a kingdom. It's his kingdom. He's giving us a mission which has to do with advancing his name, his honor, his kingdom. And this Lord's Supper is so amazing because it's just a little bit of bread, it's a little bit of juice, but it's so symbolic. And the way he puts it here is that this table with this bread and this cup, uh, we're sitting here eating at this table, but one day this table is going to become that table. This earthly table is going to become that heavenly table, and you're going to eat and drink with me, he says, face to face. What a day that's going to be. And we anticipate that, and we celebrate that every time we come to partake of the Lord's Supper. So I want to encourage you to know that Jesus has given you, follower of Jesus, child of the Father, Jesus has given you this table to nourish you in your faith for the mission he's placed in your hands. We all need to be strengthened. We all need to be nourished. And this is what that table does. It nourishes our faith in Jesus Christ. It strengthens us to keep on one day at a time in the mission that he has given to us. This precious, powerful gospel that has become the center of our lives. It's the most precious thing we have. (laughs) And the only way we can really keep it is if we give it away to somebody else. 
And our faith in Jesus needs to be strengthened for us to do this, to keep carrying out his mission together. We don't walk alone. Isn't that great? We walk together. So come and partake of this bread and this cup if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have confessed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and the Lord of your life, whether you did that in becoming a member in this church or in some other Bible-believing church, you are welcome to this table. Jesus is the host. He says, come and welcome. Do this in remembrance of me, he says, and let me strengthen you by my spirit. Let me strengthen your faith. If you're here today and you've not taken Jesus as your Savior and you know that he's not the Lord of your life, I want to tell you how glad I am that you're here today. We, we recognize that there's so many places you could be on a Sunday, but you're here. And I believe that that's because God loves you and he sovereignly arranges the circumstances of your life. Nobody knows those circumstances but you and Jesus. <laughs> and he brought you here because he wanted you to hear about him. He wanted you to know him. He wanted you to put your trust in him so that you could be forgiven of your sins. All the things you've done wrong, all the good things you've never done, that you should have, there's forgiveness. Whatever is on that list, there's forgiveness. That's why Jesus came. He came for you. And he wants to bring you back to God. He wants to bring you into the family of God, forgiven of your sins free in Christ. And he wants to give you a place at his table. He wants to make you a member of the family of the Father. So this is a great day. If you've never received Christ, let this be the day of salvation. Because this this Lord's Supper, it, it always points us back to what Jesus did at the cross to save us. And it always calls us forward and points ahead to where we're going and the place that Jesus is preparing for us, and he knows how to get us home. So, if you've never come to Christ, get on the road with him today. Just as we pass the bread and the cup around the room, just let them pass you by, but but don't let Jesus pass you by today. Just have a conversation with him, in your own words, and just say to him something like this, Jesus, I need you. I need you to forgive my sins. I need you to make me right with God. I see that it's not what I do, but it's what you have done that will make me right with God. Forgive my sins. Take me by the hand. Make me yours. Lead me. If you pray that from your heart in your own words, he hears that prayer. Always. And he forgives. And he gives you a new life. And he begins a whole process of, of healing up the, the broken places in your life that sin has, the damage sin has done. So come to Jesus. He's a wonderful Savior. He's a wonderful Lord. And I hope that you'll come to know him today if you don't already.